Hello and welcome to the 35th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Wednesday the 25th of December 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien wishing you all a very merry Marxmas. This week we continue our reading of Boss Level Chapter 9 Republican Democracy and get into the party form and how it applies to the Labour Party Marxists and more generally to first-past-the-post electoral systems. This week, I have the new Patreons Antonio Gray, Patrick O'Connor, Paul and Jesse Lopez, who is a long-time PayPal subscriber, to thank. If you'd like to help keep the good ship Alpha afloat, why not join the Patreon gang gang? From $5 a month or $1 an episode, you get access to the special Patreon-only bonus episodes, the right to vote on the reading group series and other cool stuff too. If you don't have any spare dough, I'm always looking for some people to help with editing or producing the show, especially as we are close to hitting the magical 100 Patreon target, upon which a second Patreon-only episode will be produced every month. So hit me up on Twitter or Facebook if this floats your boat. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share. Okay, to the discussion. Lexi, do you want to take seven? Point seven. To say this is not to reject either illegal or forcible action in defense of the immediate interests of the working class. The defensive action of minorities, particular sections of workers taking strike action, refusing to pay rents, organizing self-defense against fascist attacks, etc., etc., may appear to be anti-democratic because it is minority action against the wishes of an elected government. This could be the case if the state was a democratic republic, but it is not. In spite of universal suffrage, the state regime is in fact oligarchic, corrupt and committed to the interests of the capitalist minority through the rule of law. Deficit financing in the financial markets and the national state form in the world market. To take as good coin the capitalists and their states hypocritical protestations against illegal or forcible action is merely to disarm the working class. Since the capitalists and the state routinely act illegally and make illegal use of force in defense of their interests. The point is to avoid making the use of force or minority action into a strategy let alone one that attempts to evade the struggle for a majority. We cannot claim to impose our minimum program on the society as a whole through minority action, but self-defense of workers' immediate interests by sections of the class in defiance of a governmental majority created by corrupt and fraudulent means is in no sense anti-democratic. Thoughts, people. The only thing I was going to say here is like, the deficit financing in the financial markets, you know, me and my MMT. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> I object to there. Yeah. My only objection to McNair is MMT. Oh, my, oh my God. Oh, my God. You know, you didn't say MMT once this whole podcast. Now Derek's here. And, um, yeah. The, <laughs> um, I think that this is the good side of separating out, you know, bourgeois constitutionalism versus democratic republic is that it's a basic break with acting as if acting legally is the only form of legitimate political action. 
I think this this checks out for me. This this makes sense. I think we have to be qualified in our majoritarianism. There was good reasons to abandon an all-purpose majoritarianism, even if you had legitimate democratic institutions. And so self-defense of minority factions is what the autonomist traditions are all about. That stuff isn't all garbage. <laughs> it's really worth looking into, you know, how uh, women's autonomy and autonomy of oppressed nationalities, etc. You know, there's legitimate grievances in a pure majoritarian framework that need to be addressed. However, that doesn't mean we can do the Bakuninist thing and have an enlightened minority impose a program on society. Sorry, even even this this sentence here, this could be the case if the state was a democratic republic. Like, even if you had a democratic yeah. republic, no, that's, there could still actually... be goddamn strikes. Like, you could have twenty percent of the population who think are like up in arms over something that is not being reflected. So, like, I don't even think that that's true, to be honest. Yeah, um, I was actually thinking about this too. That yeah. there's a, there's a sort of like if we only had the true democratic republic, then all this would just go away, mm. and uh, it won't. I think the only thing I would say, like, in defense of McNair here is that even the Democratic uh, Republic sort of organization that's laid down in the earlier points is not strictly majoritarian, right? Like, there's a lot of emphasis on autonomy in that system. So that does kind of speak to its legitimacy as opposed to just like, oh, yeah, we have like a House of Representatives that decides everything. All the voting is on a strict population basis and the majority rules over everything. I don't think that's the picture of the Democratic Republic. Although it, it certainly has been a position advocated by some radical Republicans for sure. Derek, do you want to say anything about the first other the other six? Yeah, we just yeah. we just actually finished the section. This would be the time to reflect. Yeah, I the the issue I, I have with with some of this is the the self-government of locality seems good, but I don't really know how this works because there's not a model actually of this working. The, it is not either constitutional federalism or confederationalism nor Bonapartist centralism because a lot of things I've noticed about people who read this book is they have a tendency over time to drift into Bonapartist centralism, including, frankly, McNair himself. They're all Leninists. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, yeah. And that, that means that it is five actually a good faith plank? Well, I think somebody like McNair has come from the Leninist tradition. He was a, a Trotskyist, you know, and people fall back into their learnt operational forms, perhaps. But, like, that doesn't mean that that point can't have value. I guess the issue That's is that it's a historically unprecedented... And, you know, in our discussion, we we specifically appealed to Stafford Beer and cybernetics, you know? So we're relying on a technologically emergent form of, you know, political possibility. And it's it's often thought that there's no new political forms, you know, and that any new political form will have the problems of one of its historical antecedents, you know? So ultimately, even a cybernetic system would either start to develop some kind of characteristics more like Bonapartist centralism or more like, you know, federative, like a, a federation of some kind. There would be some echoes in history 
and there would be some connection to the problem that those systems face. The Marxist mode sometimes negates all the existing options and prays to history. Yeah, and I, I think it's like navigating that middle space in between like the federative system where it's like, oh, well, these like functionaries control how decisions are made or are or, or, or litigated between different levels of control and the Bonapartist system where it's like, yeah, you just have a straight up dictatorship is definitely a real challenge. But like, I mean, what else are we going to do? Like what, like what else could we possibly do than try to find some middle ground? I think this is why it's so important to criticize McNair for the lack of like social analysis, because yes, I think without a social base that that a has to have enough, liberty to criticize the government or the, the, you know, democratic republic, if you will, you need to give them the space to do that, to allow them to do that, and then kind of listen to them if, like, you're fucking up, you know? Without that, like, it, it will just become one or the other, I think. And the other thing you have to hold them accountable for is a lack of any real economic analysis. Some of this seems like economic analysis, like the way he defines class, but... It's not really here because because in the economic shifts that such a society would concur, there's going to be bubbling up of factions we can't even foresee. This doesn't really deal with that. Yeah, uh, we, we kind of mentioned this in passing in the last discussion, but like it doesn't really engage with the sort of attempts to reckon with like sectorialism in Czechoslovakia or Yugoslavia or you know, countries oh, that sort of like try to get towards some kind of democratic socialism. Right. That was a problem. And then, uh, I mean, you could, you could see the sectorialism even in the USSR, but then even in like clearly democratic cases, like Allende's Chile, social democracy, you know, it's arguably semi-right social democracy, but still, I mean, part of what brought that down that made the military easily take over was the fact that, you know, Cybersyn was a cut, was kind of a, a punk out on a on a trucker's strike, you know, that never talked about. Except when I talk well, about it. Well, it was a right-wing trucker's strike, though, wasn't it? it to bring the government down. down. Is right-wing in what sense? Say, for example, there was a, there was a right-wing strike in Northern Ireland in the 70s to bring down the power-sharing Sunningdale Agreement. There was a right-wing strike by the unionists. So this was, but the trucker's strike wasn't a political strike. It was a sectoral strike. So it may have had right-wing characteristics, but the thing is, economics don't give a fuck about your political orientation. It's not an ideological question. And but there was a right-wing trucker. There was a right-wing trucker strike in in Britain in '97 when Labour came into power. You know, like so. The, it's not like certain petty bourgeois well, I mean, classes haven't got power. But you you're also completely dependent on their labor. Like sure, sure. you don't get out of that just by saying they're petty bourgeois. That's cowardly. That doesn't really deal with the problem. It doesn't deal with the problem. It just shifts the problem of class somewhere else. So you don't have to deal with it. Well, like, I don't know. What's the critique? The well, critique is Cybersyn wasn't any good because the strike. It's, it not, it's not a critique. Cybersyn wasn't, Cybersyn wasn't a thing. It was a, it, it was literally a, like a, like a coordinated It didn't really work. It did fix that immediate problem, but created enough discontent for the fucking military to take over. And since, also, they didn't arm the, the working class, and also they had they had a something that Mount Dunning with had a a pensions for legality. 
they were doomed. But come, come on now, come on now, come on, Derek. Are you really making the claim Cyber Sin caused the coup? Come on now. That's fucking stupid. You're actually missing the point. But no, did you not say that? No, I did not. Sorry, I thought you said that. That's why for the coup to happen. That's not a causal thing. But surely the causal thing of the coup is not Cyber Sin, but the actual social. Yeah, but Cybersyn was a punk that also couldn't actually deliver on everything it needed to deliver, which is why our fetish for it is dumb. It, it seems like there is a it's lot all of... Kicking off. It's all going to kick off here today. It's been a while since we've been on, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you're trying to say is that Cybersyn wasn't going to solve the problem because there are some problems that Cybersyn couldn't fix, part of what you're saying at least, right? So, like, exactly for example, the working, it wasn't working class... Designed to save the problem either. Like and, and right. the issue and the issue with the truckers is is that it's it's one of those areas where if you look at McNair's definition of working class, they would count. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Is that you know? Yeah, they're it, dependent on the wage fund. Yeah, and, yeah, and right, the reason right. the reason that I, they appear kind of petty bourgeois or something nowadays is because some of them have been able to hold on to their unions and kind of have like some sort of sectoral like advantages. What? That right. Non, no, 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 the thing, no, the thing is, is that most of them typically own their trucks. What I'm trying to say is that Subrisen can't arm the working class for you. Right. And part of what right. was going on in Chile is like when you have a political structure where there's still all of your political power is concentrated in a central body or in like a hierarchical sense without any kind of checks on that, a colonial or an imperialist superpower could come off, chop the head of that and get the support of the military. And the end of the day, like the military, yes, like they didn't really properly deal with it, but you know, you gotta have the magic ingredient of imperialism. I guess- I don't actually even take that's totally true. I think that could have happened organically within the Chilean state even of itself. All you need is a strong enough reactionary force that can take advantage of the fact there is it could have um, happened that way but what did happen was imperialism well but i think you know to another point you're making is that we had a pacifistic legalistic social democratic movement right that was right. completely unable to defend itself mm-hmm. and maybe unwilling. a version not even uh, yeah, not even unable unwilling unwilling yeah. so unwilling, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think i think unwilling is more accurate because it was it would probably have been able to defend itself and if if Cybersyn was used to coordinate a response or a preemption even of the coup, you know, we might be having a different conversation. Right. But, but come on, it, was Cyber was Cybersyn not really a prototype that wasn't fully installed everywhere? Well, Are we Cyber- just getting like no, no, no. crazily ahead of ourselves on what Cybersyn that was no, in that, no, that's why I could have actually yeah, done? It was like four computers in a room that had some planning capacity that could actually. Well, it's not so much. It's not so much the computers in the room. It's how many nodes in the network outside in the country. It seems like kind of like you know. It seems to me it was just like a cool prototype that was run on the side that got some actual use before it got implemented and everyone got shot. Right. And to, <laughs> no. And to, and to like, I don't think any of us here really stand Cybersyn in the way that you kind of are, are saying in, the, in this discussion, but I think rather like we all look towards cybernetics as a concept, as a way to help with planning. And, and we look towards that because as Lexi said, like the form that we're discussing has never really exist, right? right? And 
and cybernetics the in, in the way that we want it to exist has never really existed. Not even right. the cybersyn. That that but was the closest we got. The other thing that's the elephant in the room is the cybernetics only works as a fix if social antagonism is not there, which is what you were getting to. So all these things are tied yes. together and they're not yes. resolved. So I think yes. like the universal military part or you know, universal like training part where like you have like armed working class who can defend. Without that ingredient, it doesn't matter how sophisticated of a planning mechanism you have, if it could just be usurped. Yeah, but it's also more than that, frankly, because if you have that and then you're just perpetually in civil war for 100 years, it's it's irrelevant. Sure, you have to be able to win in the end. I mean, the cybernetic planning apparatus will probably outwit an enemy without one. That's that's the idea. But the enemy does have it currently, in a, in a sense. Like if we look at like, oh, they, sure. yeah, if we look at oh, the yeah. uh, examples Amazon and Walmart. That oh, currently they do and we don't. Right. And I mean, yeah. So like, I think it's it's absolutely a valid criticism of Cybersyn that like was of limited effectiveness because of like the class struggle that was actually happening in the factories and the, the antagonism there. Like because, for example. The program said that workers needed to be like deeply involved in planning, but the managers rarely ever consulted them, and the managers were the ones who were interfacing with the cyber system. Exactly, and so um, your cybernetic inputs are as good as the social system that you have around it, which is why, again, while I'm not as as sanguine on, like even of the version that we're talking about here, I've read Red Plenty. I've thought about cybernetics a lot. It is, in some ways, the only way to run a decentralized centralized planning system. Like in right. in that way, it is like a hope. And when people hear cybernetics and, and like for, for normies, and you guys have probably already discussed this, but like it's not merely like the internet, people. Like it's a it's a lot more than that. But it, it, it that that input node thing is is interesting because it could potentially solve a problem that plugged the Soviet Union, which is, which was over teleological centralization. Mm-hmm. And that was just Bonapartism. That was even in the way they fucking did the heating. Yeah. Let's not get talking about those toilets again. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the party, because if we are arguing over the Democratic Republic, I think the party is going to cause some fights. OK, let's get let's get our knives out. I've got knuckle dusters here. Uh, we need <laughs> the stream doesn't have like we have to, some interface whereby we can like electrocute you know, the people on the panel. If they have <laughs> oh that, that'd be good. Like, that'd be, that'd be so oh, good. Wrong streaming platform. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah, oh, should we move to Pornhub? <laughs> Seriously, there probably, <laughs> probably is some SNM fucking site where we could uh, attach our genitals into our USB port. Cybernetics. Cybernetics, baby. Yeah. Feedback signals. That's the only way forward. Okay, let's hit the party here. Who hasn't read? Sophie, you've read. Have you read one? You have. Varn, do you want to read one here? Sure, I read number eight. The struggle for working for the working class to take political power involves, in the here and now, the organization of a political party standing for the independent interests of the working class. This follows from the fact that a class, as a class, is not the same thing as a particular sections of the class who are in employment. It also follows from the fact that to emancipate itself, the working class must take political power and give to lead as society as a whole. Okay. Any critiques? I mean, it's really going to depend on how you define political party. And, and, and that's been, I'm hoping this actually clarifies that because as we pointed out when I was on 
earlier. McNage is cagey as fuck about this. He sometimes makes the proper caveats to how that meaning changes, and sometimes he doesn't. So I'm going to really need to see that played out. To kind of answer that, I think, and then, you know, McNair addresses this more explicitly in the chapter on the party and where he, it, it kind of reminds me of where he talks about like Lenin's contributions to that and how what a political party was, even in a bourgeois sense, really developed, you know, towards the end of Marx's lifetime and towards the beginning of the 20th century. Whether or not he's consistent with that, like all those caveats, I'm, I'm not sure. But like taking the Steelman version of McNair, I'm going to take that chapter and bring that into the summarization of the book. I guess one could wonder about how the working class can give lead as society as a whole, but I don't really feel like that's worth pressing on yet. I'd have to see more. Let's continue. Okay, I'm going to read number nine. Number nine, such a political party needs to be democratic republican its organizational character, just as much as the form of authority that the working class needs to create in the society as a whole needs to be the democratic republic. That is, it needs the liberties, freedom of speech, etc., freedom of information, elected and recallable officials, and both central decision-making mechanisms, self-government of the localities and the sectors. The last point follows in the first place from the point made to explain points four and five. The working class needs the principles of democratic republicanism in order to cooperate, and there can be no real free cooperation where there is private property in information and in political careers. It follows in the second place from a central lesson of the Russian Revolution, repeatedly confirmed elsewhere. It is the existing party organizations of the working class that can offer an alternative form of authority to the authority of the bourgeoisie, not the trade unions and not the improvised organization of the mass struggles such as Soviets. Moreover, all states are party states shaped by the parties that created them and excluding the parties that oppose their creation. Hence, a bureaucratic centralist party, if it took political power, would inevitably create a bureaucratic centralist state. Okay, so McNair wants explicitly to have like freedom of opposition, right? And all that good stuff, like factions and or other political parties. But um, I remember one time outside of pod, Lexi and I were talking about this. And, you know, McNair makes room for a single party state as long as it has factions, right? And Lexi expresses skepticism about that, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, yeah. So how can we ensure, right? So, like, yes, like, you know, you would want, you wouldn't want, like, pro-bourgeois parties in, a demo- in, in, like, a communist democratic republic. To me, that makes sense as a given. Like, mm-hmm. I think we all agree on that. But how can you ensure, right? So, like, it, it says all party states are shaped by parties that create them, excluding parties that oppose their creation. How what if what if there was a democrat what if there was a, a, a communist party that opposed the creation of a democratic republic, opposed McNairism? Like let's say you got like a tank party and like a, a loose party of anarchists or whatever that like both don't want they want to stop this kind of communist society being created. And actual existing political organizations of the quote unquote working class on the left right now, most of them have those two characters. What what I would say is that look, say before the Irish Revolution, 1919, 21, whatever, there was parties in Ireland that were supportive of the British state. You know, they were probably the dominant parties in the 18th century, 19th century. 
Okay, when the state, when there was an uprising and all that and politics changed and after the revolution, there has never been a, like a, a pro-British party in the, in the Republic. It's just an unthinkable thing. You know, that's the point he's saying. Like, I think that if you were, imagine you had this dominant, like, revolution. But there are pro-monarchist parties in bourgeois republics when there's social discohesion. You, you, you're actually, what's interesting about your example is it does exist in a very specific imperial context. Whereas like there do, there have been, and when there's a lack of social, not just political cohesion, you will see the reemergence of prior form parties. And McNair doesn't deal with that. And no, you would never see like a pro-British Irish party, but you do but, like, see in France when there's little social cohesion, pro-monarchist factions of and maybe even parties eventually in these these social movements. Like when 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 there's lack of social cohesion, these old ideas can bubble back up. It's just assumed that they don't. But we have no evidence I, to the contrary. Look, there's no look, I think they can exist on incredibly small scale, but it, they're not going to be a, a factor ever again. Like they're near me a capitalist country where there is a party now that wants to return to feudalism. Name yeah. me one. Yeah, as as a party. Right. Yeah, literally. We are right. the feudalism party. Right, right. It doesn't right. exist. There might be some weirdos on the internet like us, right? Yeah, but yeah, like, there are the mirror universe versions of us, essentially. But like the idea like McNair doesn't seem to be taking the idea of a like an actual emergent counter-revolution from a past form very seriously. Because those have happened. Thailand, by the way. Thailand's the example. What? It's gone feudal. It's tr like there are elements of it that are trying to. There are pro-monarchist parties at minimum. Pure pro-monarchist, but there's pro-monarchist parties all over the place. Yeah, you know, but but they're not pro-feudal. Well, okay, they're not feudal so, so in what, Thailand. What what, what what I'm getting at here is like, okay, so you would actually have to have economically succeeded in abolishing the prior form, not just politically succeeded. That's the elephant in the room about makes why a monarchist policy party is possible, but a feudal po po um, party is not. It is not just that there's been a political state revolution. There has been a total social change that makes that unviable. Yeah, and I think that's the point here. But he whether doesn't he say that. I have whether to take what he says at face value. He puts this all in the realm of the state. I think he puts things primarily in the realm of the political as well, doesn't he? But like, you know, if we think about what the revolution, say, was in Ireland, it was like it came out of society. It wasn't a purely political thing. It was social, too. So I think yeah. these are wrapped together. Like this is our critique of what he's saying, but even his solution could still be correct. Yeah, you know I, mean? I, think, I think there might be some truth to this, but only yeah. like working through it. But only if you really, really, truly do have more than a political, like it's more than a state change. Right. It's, a title, it's a title social totality change. Yeah, so, totally. What, probably my favorite part of the translated works of uh, Julius Martov, the uh, Menshevik opposition leader that was loyal to the Soviet regime, is where he has a problem with the with the, dic the Bolshevik dictatorship on you know class dictatorship of the proletariat grounds, you know, even not just democratic grounds, because he's like, look, you could have this like democratic class dictatorship that would exclude bourgeois parties. And he sort of like plays that out a bit and entertains that idea more, which is, you know, for a Menshevik, pretty radical stuff. I think there is something to this 
that in order to have a functioning democratic system, especially one that advocates fucking, you know, that's like trying to build communism or whatever, like there's going to be some, it has to be pluralism within bounds. But when you look at the forms of institutional pluralism that there is, pluralism is always within bounds, always. Like there's always excluding factors. There's always unacceptable stuff in these institutions. And so that doesn't really address Derek's point. But I think that the ultimate argument being made here, I mean, again, it it just makes me think that if, if you follow McNair's words to the letter, you end up with Martov and not Lenin. And I think the only way to really take this seriously as a strategy is to fill in the gaps for him on the totality of the social change that would need to happen. You know, I feel like a broken record, but like he kind of falls flat in his face when it comes to social issues. Not in like an identitarian sense either, but like in the classic communist sense. Yeah, it's just sort of a given factor that is playing out in the background, but not explored in detail. Right. I, I think it's a problem. And I think like that lack of like um, social analysis and focus on political analysis of this book kind of leads to like the soft tanks that have taken this book and ran with it, you know? It's absolutely not the case that that social dimension is unproblematic or like solved. It just simply is not the case. We are in broken record territory. And whenever I get in broken record territory, I think to myself, okay, what, what I need here is like a remix where you, you get like, you know, sections of Eric Olin right in here or something, you know, and then, then you see how the arguments play out. And, you know, mm-hmm. Eric Olin Wright, of course, who died recently, rest in peace, pretty consistently advocates for like hyper Bernsteinism where he's given up on his old new left hopes for classless society and just thinks that making capitalism less class is probably the horizon we got here. When you actually do like sociological analysis, it's hard to maintain the Marxist politics. When did he do his research and when is he writing? Oh, I mean, look, he, he was a new left Marxist. So the hopes that he had for revolution, yes, those, those were in vain. You know, it's like, it's, I think it's important to be sympathetic to that. He's pretty sober about his former revolutionary hopes and just that those old horizons can't be ours is something that he tackles even in his later writings when he gets to talking about like what revolutionary transformation, the different logics of revolutionary transformation. It always just strikes me as, you know, like these things go in phases when the all these books and certain writer types become popular when like certain downswings or upswings of social activism. People can use all manner of theory to say why, oh, this will never happen again or this will happen. Like who would have thought in, in 91 in America that by 2019 there'd be a, a big upswing in popularity for socialism in America and, and even communism? People would, would laugh at you in 91 or two, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would have. But the other thing is, if you actually looked at the content of these things, it isn't that different than the stuff going on in progressivism priorly. And that's that's where, like, I, I, I agree Fair with enough. you, from. I actually really do, but I'm also I'm also like I get a little hedgy when we start getting too like misty eyed about the Overton window shifts and stuff. Like you, you don't see those coming, but it's also like uh, usually unclear how substantive they actually are in the moment. Like you really only see them, and even right now, like I can't. I also don't want to condemn them as not being truly socialist enough because I really don't fucking know how these things are going to play out like at all. 
Yeah, well, I don't think they'll play out particularly well. I think there are 40, 50 year cycles and it'll take probably a couple of them before we'll get back to a revolutionary one in the West, perhaps. This is like a sock dem wave. Yeah. And people will go, oh, fuck that sock dem shit, maybe the next time. Yeah, agreed. Okay, let's do number 10. Uh, Lexi, hit us. To do the job of organizing the struggle for the self-emancipation of the working class, the Workers' Party has to be independent of the capitalists and of the existing capitalist state. This implies that the working class has to build up its own funds, its own educational and welfare systems, and its own media. Dependence on the capitalists and their state for these resources results in inability to speak against the capitalists' interests. It implies also that the Workers' Party cannot accept responsibility, either as a minority in a government with capitalists or pro-capitalist parties, or in any government at all, that is not committed to the immediate creation of the democratic republic in the interests of the working class. The underlying reason for this point was explained in chapters 2 and 7. Capitalists, nation-states, are firms in the world market. And to defend the interests of the nation state, it is necessary to carry on the capitalist side of the class struggle against the working class. Today, we are 147 million miles away from this idea of independence yeah. from the state. The whole mm -hmm. left is completely saying, oh, we want to get our hands on the state and increase the wealth systems and do it through the state. And this cycle, we are so, I don't know of one country in the world that's not doing the gain state power bullshit. Right. And the people that articulate this stuff most clearly now are like, like hyperactivists, anti-revisionist Maoists that want to do like housing unions or something. Or maybe they're former communizers that joined the DSA or something and are willing yeah. to like, be like, all right crazy ass any revisionist Maoists. I'm willing to link arms with you if you want to do this tenants union and don't want to shit on people that are trying to do activism. I want to see whatever's viable, you know, happen. I can marshal my critiques from the new left and the Solinsky ite, you know, neighborhood association shit, whatever. Like that's not, I suppose the point, the point would be that like when these class independent institutions are tried particularly without the workers' movement, but even with the workers' movement, they develop a character that isn't exactly more democratic than the overall norms of the society. You know, the bourgeois constitutional sort of governmental uh, structure and the social norms that it creates. And that's something McNair insists on in the introduction. Look, we have to be at least as democratic as the society, if not more. And, you know, he means we need to be more. Right. Like it's got to be more than that or else, I don't know, people would have an interest in opposing it. <laughs> I think it should be less democratic. I think it should be run on some kind of a, a random oh, yeah. draw, surf and lord basis. I think that would be good. Um, this <laughs> line a here. There are models that aren't that far from that, to be honest. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is one thing that uh, I'm a bit uncertain about. It's like. Say you're the Labour Party in England in 20 years' time, and say they've totally killed the right, and they totally even in Nair's line, and they won't take state power, and they want a democratic republic, and say they get 70% of the vote 
and they win out and they dominate the parliament. Like, what is McNair saying? Let's say they're the only one in Europe and none of the other ones are strong enough yet. So there's no European-wide stuff. And so they assembly sent the vote. Did they just sit in opposition and vote down everything that the Tories do? Like, in reality, what does it mean that they're not even going to put their own bills forward to alleviate stuff? What would it mean? I just, I don't understand in reality how it would operate. It points either to this is dumb. Like, you know, you, if you're going to run, you have to accept the possibility of taking power or that there's a really like limited window where you really want to consider the electoral portions of the strategy. It's not as Marx imagined that it would just be a sort of ever present. Okay. We should always have, you know, workers representative standing. There's, it's always a good thing to have that happening. It would sort of imply that there's like an institutional window. There's an expiration date. There have to be several it, windows. Like, so like, let's say like, you know, you're in like a moment of like heightened conservatism, like being a, a minority and not forming the government might be a good thing to get that voice out there. Like, I can't see a party just wrecking. I mean, the, 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 uh, frankly, it fucking wrecks the, the Republicans in the United States. Yeah. Even they're in a majority position. That's really all they're good at. Yeah. But no, they're solid at that. And I, I don't know. I think I think if there's, you know, mass antipathy towards like all the political projects, it kind of kind of makes sense. There's there's an there's a logic to it. It's, there's an extra institutional logic to it. Is it like if if my scenario there where you have like labor with Rakami labor with 70 percent of the vote, like is that not just a kind of a, a signal of a failure of lack of international development that like if that was to happen, it would mean that his actual like McNair's pro- proposals here are not being followed because it has to be international. And that that would imply it. It's not really international. I think the steel man version of McNair, yes. Like you would want if you're at a point where you're like about like you have a majority and you're like almost ready to take power, but there isn't any international support. You can't have at least a continent a block. Like you fucked up at some point. I think if you're giving like a steel man version of McNair. Yeah, I think that's absolutely like right. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that if you have seventy percent support in England and the rest of Europe is like uninterested in what you're saying, that's a failure. That's definitely a failure. <laughs> okay, are we to move on to number eleven? Do it. Ideally, this implies that there should be a single workers' party uniting both those who believe that the workers' interests can be defended through the existing state regime, and those who insist on the struggle for the democratic republic, with this difference expressed in the form of public factions with with their own press, organization, and membership, and complete freedom of criticism. At the crunch moments when it becomes necessary to do so, the working class should then have the ability to choose between these factions. In practice, however, this is impossible. Because the state and the capitalist are on their side, and the state loyalist coalitions will always insist on a veto on revolutionary politics. This makes it necessary for those who stand for the working class to take political power to organize a party separate from the state loyalist coalitionist. This, in turn, poses a question of united class front. The struggle for unity and action of the whole class around an immediate common goals against the split force by the loyalist coalitionist demand for a veto. This one's hard. The thing that kind of made me mildly uneasy about this 
was the idea of like a single work workers party, but I guess what he's talking about in this instance is a single workers party not in power, right? So this kind of gets to the back to the issue or the chapter on unity and splits, basically. At the end of the of the last episode, I kind of like looked at Lexi at some point, and I was like, "So the way to do McNairism in the United States is to join the DSA." Is what this is getting at. It's it's so complicated because like there is no for, there is no yeah, current no. thing in America. There's no current one anywhere in the West. No, no, Bar there's, maybe, there's not. The split is some, there might be a small party somewhere in a PR country in Europe. There's and there's a good reason for this. When I read this, I f- I feel like he's most responding to the analytical Marxist political scientist Adam Perzwarski who does, you know, a rational choice model of party strategy in a national context. And this flies in the face of any of the, you know, just basic kind of principles of national political strategy. This is it. (laughs) And the question of, A, once you break off from the loyalists, let's say you can even draw the line. So, okay, A, where do you draw the line exactly? Uh, you know, it sounds it sounds like it should be relatively straightforward, but in fact, in the DSA, you'll have a lot of people that sort of argue, like that, you know, muddy the waters and sort of fudge it. That, you know, oh, the DSA is this kind of formation. You know, my chapter is, you know. Then, you know, beyond that, are there further splits that are warranted? If so, how do you get beyond an infinite tr- split regress? You know, and then aside it from split, all that, it splits all the way down, Lexi. It splits all the way down, but potentially. And then aside from that, let's say we achieve the optimal number of splits. We have the right number of splits and the correct number of party tendencies. How do you do an honest united front? Or how do you not just become a, a another irrelevant Trotsky sect? You know, even if you're not officially a Trotskyist. That would be part of an honest united front, right? Like you can have your, like a smaller tendency, but you're doing like, you're you're part of what's politically going on in society and workers' politics or what have you. Like to be actually be able to do that, there could be like 10 fucking micro tendencies. <laughs> and if they were all like sort of socially justified within themselves and able to come together and function as like workers' representation, I don't know, it would be... A, it wouldn't be great, but it would be a different situation. I, I mean, I know you're putting this forward as like a hypothetical or like, what if this is the outcome of that strategy? Yeah, I'm thinking of this like basically, you know, in terms of like Adam Parzwarski just kind of paves over this stuff. And it's like, look, like this is how you lose elections, people. <laughs> you want to be like some narrow, you know, workers interest people, you, you know, you're going to lose your elections. Yeah, I guess that kind of like leads me to like put forward again a kind of like center left position of like very limited engagement with the electoral apparatus, not non engagement. But like, I think sometimes I honestly think a lot of times it's just more trouble than it's worth. I I would be able to agree with that if there were obvious other projects to do. Right. And the thing is that, you know, hey, the thing you can say about these like right wing social Democrats, they have goals and, you know, might never achieve them, but hey. Like they have goals and they they have, they have like ways of trying to achieve those goals. That's not great. Might be as like utopian and unrealistic as like those Leninist revolutionaries for a lot of individual cases, you know, but uh, I don't know. There's only a partial failure of, of 
holistic and instrumental reason and not a total one. We do need some kind of social base. And like, I, I get where Derek is coming from and being skeptical of like a base building or whatever. But like, I think like you kind of got to like start with like what's around you, not do it as somebody parachuting in from like, you know, academia or like an NGO or something, but just like start with like what's around you and like what's in your community, you know? Cause like the, the, the Germans as they pay didn't get to be like as powerful as it was without that social base at first. So like, and if that's kind of, if we're looking at all these historical examples, let's also look at these historical examples for like, how do they build a base? How, or how do they have a base? Maybe you can't build, really build the base. Maybe it's like too spontaneous for that. But how did that come to be? It, it, it happened somehow. Sure. Like workers, though, all the workers clubs and, and so on and so forth, like all that, all that jazz. I guess that's maybe a similar issue in the sense that we don't have that and therefore breaking off and having class independent institutions. Maybe fuck all the politics right now. Like this, this is this is like two. This is like a step ahead of where we're at currently. Just like build class independent institutions first. Right, but that all right. Assuming that we have those, you know, the, these questions still worth sure entertaining, thinking about. Sure, and that's that's what McNair's good at. We're reading this book. We're not reading Eric Olin Wright, you know, and we're not going to read it next time because uh, 18th Brumaire went out. And that's 18th probably Brumaire. Yeah, it fucked it up. I think when you've got countries that have essentially first-past-the-post equivalents like America, where they basically don't allow for small parties to arise, that McNair's whole system, to me, breaks down. Again, that's, yeah. it, that's his own context, remember? If you think about like what happens, say, and you're in, say, I don't know, Belgium or something, and there's a bit of an economic crisis and some Marxist party ends up getting a few seats and they might end up getting like 5, 10, 15% of the thing. It's like a pressure valve releasing inside a society that allows it to reflect something, you know, even in its bourgeois state, you know, in its bourgeois form. Where you get ones like Britain and America where they have first-past-the-poll systems or equivalent, you know, America's is just weird. But um, it's like, you know, the structure of the political system is set up not to alleviate these stresses and it means that like instead of like a pan coming up and the greens say in america getting 10 percent representative in the house of Commons or house of representatives or congress something that can never happen and it means that like like the, the society will it to me it means that it's more likely to end up in a revolutionary change you know after a few hundred years of getting pissed off than it is likely to allow to move say a more european way and i just think that this idea of a separate party in those scenarios can never work i just don't think it can work i i don't see what the i i don't see what there is to do only a type of entryism so, I, I i just think i the only thing that could like what do you do you do you sit around and try and organize like people for like 300 years <laughs> you know the route doesn't seem to be uh, external to the labor party say you're doing external to the labor party in say say you've got like a really good cpgb party or something right and it's, it's sitting there do you like wait for 200 years until people get pissed off with first past the post is that the plan i mean it's, it's a real question of if you have this perspective you know maybe it's not helpful to th think politics first if you have this perspective, 
especially in a first past the post context, you really have to take the social questions first. Like, and elections might end up useful tangentially, but as a real like strategic orientation, it's, yeah, it's, it's just hard to see how one can sustainably do oppositional electoral logic in the absence of social movement underneath it, propelling it. When all of the attempts to do class independent politics end up dominated by Stalinists, left unity efforts and these sorts of things. And when probably the, some of the better independent political troll candidates I can think of, at least in the US, you know, they're sort of like, I don't know, vermin supreme or something, you know, Derek could probably talk more about that. But I think it sort of dovetails with sort of the, maybe the right wing of the 1968 heritage or something like that. Yeah, I, I, it's just like, how, did, how do you do oppositional political forms in, in the absence of, of the social movements that you need to make them, to really give them legs? I mean, in that, in that case, like, I don't know, like, Tom, I'm not actually sure on what your position on entryism is here, because like, either you organize separately as revolutionaries or McNairists or whatever inside the existing party, right? And that is what I think of as entryism, you know, is when an organization exists within the greater, you know, party org. And, you know, some, that would be something like the Democratic Socialists of America. Let's just, let's just smooth out the contradiction I was just talking about. <laughs> Right. And, and you have a sort of like in lobbying int- or, you know, sort of political activist interest group within it, a part, a party of activists that enters into the bourgeois coalitionist party. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying I have a, a set formulated my opinions yet. I just see that this is a problem mm-hmm. with this strategy. That's the way I'm looking at it. Like, for example, to me, like I have thought about could you implement a, some type of ratchet strategy? where you keep trying to, if you had like, say, for example, the whole momentum in labor or the DSA thing, like the labor policies since Corbyn is going to power, they've actually been getting more radical. It's an interesting phenomenon. Now they're trying to get rid of private schools. You know, there's a lot of things that they've that have become up and have become actual party policy now, whether they'd ever do them or anything is a different thing. But like, is it possible that you can organize within a faction and ratchet up the level of, you know, their policy, their official policy to the extent where they become close to a minimum program? Because in Labour, I know people are going to shit me now for saying all this, but Labour have had some, especially in the recent ones, some really radical policies get through. Uh, Like, is there a ratchet strategy that's possible through entryism. I don't know. I'm just like asking it because I think that in in somewhere like Britain, like the the CPGB will never, no matter how good it's run, will never be able to break that two party thing. Barred or some cataclysmic revolutionary moment, which I I don't know if I can't imagine it. Micah is that like that kind of entryism that you're talking about and like ratcheting up the revolutionary potential of the Labour Party. Is something that can happen that's even though there's there's some, a lot of similarities between the us and the uk uh england in particular like i think that is a lot more possible there than it is here but i do want to point out tom that when, it, when we debated this in the past and i say i think that's more viable in the uk than it is in the us and then you you're not really like you're just thinking things through and you kind of make some comparisons between labor and the democratic party 
all that does for me is make me think that this strategy is less and less viable. Like the more, like yeah, but the more parallel there is between labor and Democratic Party, the more I think this whole thing is, is bunk to begin with. But the, the thing is, though, yeah, but the thing is, though, America is not Britain. I think America still hasn't got over its settler colonialism yet. I don't you know, know what I mean. Well, like, like, it will. It will as things become utterly proletarianized, and this idea of the land thing is. You know, it's a founding myth as if people get pissed off with it as a real thing. That can take a long time to go. That shit can take hundreds of years to go. Yeah, well, it depends on what you mean by getting over the subtle colonial thing. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? Sorry. Yeah, I mean this idea of, like, the uh, the Americans, I don't know, I'm just talking as a, as a an Irish guy, right, saying, like, this <laughs> idea that we're, like, everybody got their own plot of land. You had, you know, this idea of everybody having their own, like, or 20 acres of land and their house and this feeling of independence this freeborn man or something you're more something you're more talking about american exceptionalism which is explicitly tied to the settler state but is also its own thing right like yeah i think it's it's a political it's a it's an ideology that's still quite alive in american thought or people i think is another common feeling that people have Oh, I was just going to say you're kind of getting at like the ideas of Jeffersonianism, smallholders, uh, smallholding uh, settlers having political and economic liberty, right? And I think that's like one form of settler colonialism. And it, it certainly informs other forms that have existed. For example, like, yeah, you know, the Californian ideology, the actual form of Californian settler colonialism in America was very different from what Jefferson was relating to. But there's a kind of like rhyming ideology there and where people like kind of see themselves as a part of that independent uh, settler colonialism idea Mm -hmm. as opposed to like what California actually was, which was like a massive state-directed settler colonial project of just sort of like titanic engineering prowess. I mean, I think, I think there's like a rough parallel between the ideological problems of settler colonial politics and the forms of uh, nationalism that aren't settler colonial, like nations form, you know, as sort of like magnified, like tribal associations and different customs win out. Even European countries that never had an empire or something. You know, their national projects mean squashing, you know, some dissident like tribes within their borders and this sort of thing. Right. So I I feel sometimes that we can make it like that settler colonial countries are especially backwards on these questions. They are backwards on these questions. Don't get me wrong. But there are ways that European nationalisms will have to ideologically deal with the same things and, you know, materially. And I guess maybe the difference would be that you know, when the British have to let go of their empire, the British nation state survives. Does the American nation state survive in like a, a real like transformation from settler colonialism? Yeah, one, one question is, has there been a radical left, like a, an actual revolutionary left thing in any settler colonial country in history? Only in tied to micronationalism breaking off from an imperial state, which led to uh, the 50s and actually is the kind of background periphery for the new left in quote unquote core economies. 
But who are you talking about then, Derek? Name, name names for me. The early Nigerian, early Zimbabwe, early. Uh, but the thing is, all those all those all those states had their own problems. They couldn't. They didn't ever even remotely get to transcendent capitalism. They weren't even developed as capitalist nations. The other issue comes to the eventual land crunch, and this brings us back to what you were talking about, Tom. That everyone kind of skipped over because they kind of went to one valence of settler colonialism and not another. We are like, yes, there's plenty of land in the United States, but it's not particularly useful for what we need it to be useful for. Like, you don't really want to, like, I don't know, go settle upper Idaho or western Michigan. All right. That's actually a problem. It's a huge fucking problem for a communist organization. One that McNair nor anyone here has ever dealt with. And it's going to be because it's divide. It's a it's a divide in the proletariat itself. All right. And it's it's why rural proletariat doesn't really see itself as proletariat. And they wouldn't use those terms. No one uses those terms in America, but that's an issue in America in specific. But what's interesting is those patterns you're beginning to see in the UK. That's new. That's where that stuff reemerges in an interesting way. Like rural Toryism emerging or rural UKIPism even emerging in these areas that were for a long time did not have the character of U.S urban rural divide they were tories or they were not tories depending on how much they made the north in england was historically uh labor and it's because they're working class well that's changing in all the polls i see now does not mean that labor isn't working some people take this to mean labor isn't working class anymore but what what i'm actually beginning to see is that divide that you see in the set of colonial states between rural and urban for reasons that have to do with that they're suburbanization was was a unconscious i don't even think this was like designed this way further alienated the proletariat into the atomized atomized middle class that's true in america but you're seeing those things in non-settled colonial states now and that that's what lexi's getting at and that's that actually means that the problem isn't just settled colonial so even just getting over that infinite land which we no longer have legitly i mean we're that's what that's what this housing price bullshit's really about let's be let's be honest in the United States, and that's a big damn problem. It's it's like, the, it is a problem of, of, literally, it's an economic problem of prosperity in the U.S. But it, that's been a case in Europe for, like, ever. It's only now where the U.S. now has to deal with that. And so that is a change. We right. can't go and take any more land. But the other thing is, like, there's plenty of fucking land here. The issue isn't land. The issue is space relative to production. And that's also shifted. And that isn't discussed in the set of colonial things at all and that's gonna make these factions real weird and it also means like attempts to bridge that are going to take thinking about politics in ways fundamentally different than we have so far and i don't think this book really approaches that at all if we think about like say i'm just making shit up here now but like in, in the uk it's a function of you know like rate of profit offshoring deindustrialization in the us too so are we going to see this deindustrializing causing these phenomenon of turn to the right now that there's no organization in these places like there used to be is this what we're seeing as a just what you're kind of thinking is yeah, uh, like the next shift that's what i'm seeing and it, the one thing i do want to point out that kyle was right about is that jeffersonianism makes the u.s kind of where we actually are a little bit weirdly exceptional ingles actually picks up on this in his letters to marx about the united states the yeomanism that Jefferson was basing his shit off of was from England at a time period before capitalism, as we know it, had industrialized. 
or even was fully existent. So yeah, it was, was manufacturing and guilds, wasn't it? Right. Really at that stage, he was modeling his like free yeoman off of this idea of like the free petty bourgeois proprietor who had land, and now we have infinite land because we've taken it from the natives. And so that's the sort of colonial part of that. But like that mythology, interestingly, has rhymed, but it's also led to our inability to do proper analysis because we can say, oh, this is a set of colonial problem. It's unique to the set of colonial areas. And then when it starts showing up in like Europe, we don't have a way to explain that off of that simple answer. And that's because these the, honestly, I also like world historically speaking, the only thing that makes settled colonial societies as we know them particularly exceptional is the transatlantic role in developing capitalism otherwise like all societies have been settled colonial at their early instance instantiations they just are colonialism weird is it's primitive accumulation like at a later stage than like we thought it was supposed to happen i was just wondering if you could uh if you could clarify a little bit like what exactly is at stake here so you're saying essentially that the problematic not about access to land it's access to productive land like productive in the sense that it is a site of productive accumulation high productivity yeah yeah right exactly so now you have to see yourself and like this is actually almost from like the world systems mode but taking the world systems notions of like nation states as operant actors which world systems tends to do and looking at like urban development and economic centralization as an operant actor. And you see this in everywhere in the developed world right now. And it's hard to disentangle that, which, which also means though, that this problem is not unique to the set of colonial societies. That's really my point. Like that, that's not the only thing driving this problem. Like, unlike say, you know, I don't know, Germany, you know, which has been like unified as a German state, not as long as the U S actually, but it seems like these kind of like independent, more, tribal kind of pagan communities for example that have that were like independent from like the main society if that makes any sense have been more fully integrated and folded in or crushed or whatever have been been dealt with in those societies for much longer than what we have in the u.s even though the u.s is like an older country than like the unified state of germany or the unified nation of germany we have reservations germany doesn't you know what i mean and so I think that makes sort of colonialism more of a life issue. But the things that Derek is talking about in so far as like the economic kind of functions and how like primitive accumulation in, in, in terms of like land plays out is still true also. What you're seeing now is voting pattern shifts. So historically speaking, in labor voting patterns in the UK and in France, right? Our socialist party in France. The rural urban divide did not play out nearly as much as the class divide did. Now you are seeing voting patterns that do reflect the rural urban divide like it has been in America since like the 60s. How much of that is a function of neoliberalism when all the left parties kind of just went to the right? Yeah. And they they feel rejected from it. Is it a secondary effect of the previous crisis? Right. I actually don't know. This is this is where disaggregating that whole political versus economic development issue is really, really difficult. Lexi's talked about the, the hardness of actually doing the raw sociology there and the conclusions you might come up with. And what all I can tell is I've experienced this as a feedback loop. And in the feedback loop in federal colonial societies with a lot of land, 
historically speaking, when land was more more a part of capital than it currently is, there was a the, the land buy off really was a thing, and like that whole labor aristocratic reading of settler colonialism was somewhat true. True in Canada, true in the United States, true in Mexico, even, even though we don't like to talk about that very much, but like it was. And that's not, that doesn't work anymore because land is not as huge of a circuit of productivity, just it's just not, even for food. So that's different. And then you also have the neoliberalization as the neoliberal like revitalization of capital as a political project, which happens concurrent to that. And like saying which one drives the other is almost impossible, like at this point. We'd have to have a shift out of neoliberalism to really see if neoliberalism success was predicated on the economic conditions or if it set up the economic conditions. There are some hints that it's predicated on the economic conditions because some of the some neoliberalization happened before neoliberalism was a formal, real viable ideology. But like it's it's very hard to tell. Yeah. And the Marxist point here is not that one totally drives the other. It's that they're interlocked in a causally asymmetrical sort of antagonism where each of them has its own kind of causal elements. And so I want to just make a qualified defense of what the book is doing here, that abstracting things to their baldest instrumental logic, the way that, you know, European nationalism starts to dovetail on patterns that you get in settler colonial societies you know, shows that there's at least two ways to get to an abstract sort of dynamic. And so, and while we all feel that this book doesn't isolate enough of the key social variables, the ultimate strategic point that on the top of 166 in the book we're reading, we're trying to get to is a difficult one. This book is subtitled The Challenge of Left Unity. This is in the context of a debate in the Communist Party of Great Britain between Labour Party Marxists that were arguing for a form of entryism before the Corbyn campaign and people involved with something called left unity. And there was a frankly quite boring series of articles in the Weekly Worker that go into the ins and outs of every little bit of these left unity discussions. I mean, they just, they went nowhere. They went nowhere and and it's dominated by cranks even worse than you know, a Labour Party Marxist tendency, which is dominated also by cranks. The people that really won out with a Labour Party Marxist strategy is the AWL, the Alliance for Workers' Liberty, which I think there's some kind of Shachtmanite spinoff. I don't really know. <laughs> they, back, they back Israel or Palestine. Yeah, that's Yikes. that's insane. So yeah, just the basic problem here is that like, when you break off from, you know, the bourgeois entry strategy, the political crankdom gets worse. It's like not just like worse in terms of like it becomes more of an obsession because it could become more of a pathological obsession with more instrumental results, but it becomes more of a pathological obsession and you get less and less results. You enter the spiral of diminishing returns that like makes the reformists look good and it makes, and it makes entryism look good. I guess the question with entryism is, you know, well, fuck it. Like, what is really the difference between having some kind of Labour Party Marxist group in the Labour Party or just individually joining the Labour Party? So, okay. So in the context of Labour Party Marxism versus the left unity thing, in terms of this book and the strategist line, what is the difference? Okay. So what the, what, so that's what McNair is arguing for. Like, we're supposed to be outside of it, but working with them. 
it's it's unclear to me, honestly. Actually, after because they are they are members of the Labour Party. Like the CPGB people are members of the Labour Party. Many of them. The thing to understand is that 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 tendency won out over the left unity tendency. Like that left unity transparently fell on its face, even in the eyes of its advocates within the CPGB. Yep, and that has not been discussed since everybody started discussing this book. Furthermore, I mean, in my own personal life, I see this just. Just frankly, when you talk about weird crankdom, you know, I work in Marxist publishing. We have to work with social Democrats. We have to promote social Democrats, even when it's not in the interest of our politics, because like they can actually get something done. Yeah. Everybody else has sectarian scrabbles and weird bullshit in such a way that collapses everything before you get more than 100 people. Right. Reading through this book, it, it seems like it is trying to argue for a split and to have your own sort of thing. It doesn't even seem so it feels like, am I wrong? Am I wrong about this? Because like, it seems like blocking with labor or just entryism in labor would be something akin to the basic problem of Kautskian strategy and the, and the classical Kautskian center. Right. But the, but that also implies that the context in which this book was written to address it failed. This book failed. Yes. Yes, but yeah. you know, so does like wages for housework and other important theoretical texts. But okay. yes, but, gotcha. yeah, but that doesn't it doesn't mean that it's not the right idea. But like the you know because everything can sure. fail you in know. the right strategy. The the thing there's two things there, Lexi. One point you said is like what's the difference between just entering the Labour Party on your own than as a faction? One thing is you know just organisation will amplify the strengths and the dynamism of those actual members. Yeah, undoubtedly. The, 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 the but, point would be to get like a, a much more detailed description than what we're probably going to be able to do in the last five minutes here. You know what I mean? Like it, it's really yeah. worth thinking about, you know, what it, what does it mean to be a party of activists within an actual electoral party? Yeah. The other thing I would say is that it's one thing I pointed out, like when we did it, I can't remember. I was it in chapter six There's one line in it where he talks all the way. The whole book is talking about why you have to keep. It has to split from the right of the of the the labor movement or whatever, and then in one sentence he says something like, "And if you are entering with the right, you got to have your own independent organizations." And it was just like the whole book was about saying the opposite, and then it's about <laughs> saying that you go in. He slips it in in a line, so yeah, it, it seems to me that it's it is not clear. But uh, like one thing, you know, what I'm going to do is bring in. McNair back for an interview and I've been writing down all of our critiques Hell all yeah. the goddamn time and I have like 25 or 6 points I think hopefully it will help to inform our opinions of what he's actually saying yeah and I also like to see how his perspective has changed this book is mm -hmm. actually older than its hype is like it's it's right. from what oh, over 10 years ago right like, yeah 11 I think yeah and it was comprised of an article a series of weekly worker articles essentially and so, like, I wonder if some things have changed in his thought between now and then. And he hasn't, like, fully made that public. I mean, he's Matt, been working on another version of it for a, a long time. So there, there is, like, a, a grand revision coming eventually. Yeah, there's some gestation going on. And I don't know if any, has anybody read his 2013 book on Kautsky? I have it and haven't read it, but I do have it. And I've been looking at it, like, on colonialism book. Because that's a fra like it, you want to you want to understand a fracture point in the history of socialism like that's yeah. a big one.
On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats.